Hello, and welcome to Montana Classical College. Today, we'll be talking about William Golding's novel, The Lord of the Flies. Uh, the lecture will be broken up into five different parts. First, there'll be some introductory remarks on the question that we'll try to be following up on, which is, why do societies fall apart? Then, we'll talk about how the boys who are trapped on this island uh, without adult supervision, how they try to form a political community and the ways in which they almost seem to do a somewhat admirable job at first. Then we'll talk about the principles that the boys aim at that animate their political community. Uh, then we'll talk about the dissolution of that community um, and talk about the beast. That there's a, at first, the boys think that there is an actual creature on the island that's stalking them, and this is, causes a great deal of their discontent. Uh, but later on, they start to wonder, or at least one of them is able to grasp the possibility that the beast is somehow within the boys themselves. Finally, we'll talk about the ending of the book and whether or not it's fitting. Uh, I happen to think, and we'll make a strong argument for why the ending uh, is proper. And in the end of the book, all of the boys are hunting grouse in the forest. The entire island is set on fire. And then a naval officer uh, comes and sort of puts things to a stop uh, in order to pick up the boys. So, it looks like a kind of deus ex machina ending, which has led some readers to be highly disappointed by the book. However, I'll try to explain why Golding thought that that was the best way to end the book. The main characters in the book are Ralph. Uh, he's our key protagonist. There's Piggy, uh, a fat boy with glasses that turn out to be very important. Then we have Jack and Simon. Ralph and Piggy are both highly optimistic about the nature of man, and in many ways, they overemphasize the importance of reason and speech. It's not as if those things aren't important, but they seem to lose sight of the fact that sometimes force uh, might be necessary in political life, and they think the exhortations will be enough to get people to do things that they don't want to do. Jack, on the opposite side, sees little use for reason and speech. Uh, and he is more about action, more about the enforcement of rules. Um, and so he sort of forms this opposite pole where you have speech and reason on one side and a kind of willfulness and force on the other. Um, Jack is very much a hunter as well. Um, then we have Simon. Simon is the character who kind of has a revelatory insight into the problem that the boys are facing, that there's not really an external enemy. Uh, there's not actually a beast stalking them, but rather he comes to grasp that the beast is somehow within the boys. However, he's Cassandra-like in his inability to bring this knowledge to the other boys. He's notoriously very bad uh, at speaking. Okay, so with that said, let's turn to the question of why do things fall apart? Oh, and as a brief aside, most of the quotations that I'll be using I've put up um, on the substack if you want to take a look at those. All right, so a little bit before the midway point of the book, Ralph asks the assembly of boys, quote, things are breaking up. I don't understand why. We began well. We were happy. And then he trails off. Later in the story, when things have gotten much worse, he says to Piggy, what makes things break up like they do? William Golding seeks to teach his readers the answer to this question. What makes things break apart? We can put the question differently. Why do political communities fall apart? What causes a well-functioning group to fragment? 
we can make the question more historical. What led the Romans to fall apart? Why didn't they last forever? Or we can make the question more immediate and urgent. Could the United States break up or fall apart? It's in times like these that we are impelled to try to understand Ralph's question. Why do things break up like they do? This question is a permanent or fundamental question that all communities have to come to grips with. So I think it's good when you're reading a book or especially a novel to try to orient yourself with questions that the novel itself asks rather than trying to impose questions from the outside so that you're in a better position to learn from the novelist themselves. So with that question in mind, why do things fall apart? Let's turn to our second part. How do the boys form their political community? So before we turn to the deepest cause that Golding presents for why things fall apart and the signs of that cause, let's talk about how the boys founded a community on this island and examine what form of government they gave to themselves, as well as what kind of laws and ways they established for themselves. By showing the boys coming to form a community, Golding shows to us the basic elements of political life. We have a kind of thought experiment before our eyes. If you were to restart political life or the United States from the ground up, how would you do it? The boys have before them an immense opportunity to be the founders of a new political community. So how do the boys begin? They come together after Ralph and Piggy discover the iconic conch and use it to call an assembly. To call an assembly means that the boys want to deliberate or discuss how best to orient themselves in their new circumstances. They end up saying, let's have a vote. And here's a quotation from the narrator. This toy of voting was almost as pleasing as the conch. Jack started to protest, but the clamor changed from the general wish for a chief to an election by a claim of Ralph himself. None of the boys could have found good reason for this. There was a stillness about Ralph. There was his size and attractive appearance, end quote. And, of course, Ralph had the mysterious conch. Ralph, the most handsome boy of the group, is elected chief. Now, some of us might want to laugh at this metric of beauty being used, but in the absence of anything else, we hope for a kind of correspondence between the exterior and interior of a human being. Beauty carries with it a kind of hope uh, that some kind of lasting goodness will follow from it. So, again, you know, the most beautiful leader is not always going to be the best leader, but it's not uh, the most crazy place to start. Okay, so what form of government do the boys have in light of this vote? We see the boys put together a kind of democratic monarchy or a parliamentary monarchy. So let's turn next to think through how the boys can sustain their government and what principles uh, it will have its citizens, in quotation marks, aim at. So Ralph says that we can't have everybody talking all at once. We'll have to have hands up, like at school. A conch is given to the person who speaks. There is thus supposed to be an equal opportunity to speak under the law. This sustains the democratic element of the monarchy. Ralph likes to handle things through deliberation. He wants, at least to some extent and at least much of the time, to persuade and convince those he rules over instead of simply commanding them. Ralph grasps that hand-raising is necessary to avoid a cacophony of voices. It allows the boys to attempt to reason through things. To wait one's turn to speak indicates the possibility that one will listen. 
Speaking and listening in turn allows for an examination of circumstances that isn't possible if people are talking over each other. When we talk over each other, one voice eventually wins out. It means that force or strength of will is the determinant on what the way forward will be. Now, as much as we wish for reason and rationality to rule over politics, the book immediately makes us aware of, of the alternative to speech, which is force. When Jack says, quote, we'll have rules, lots of rules. Then when anyone breaks them, bong. Uh, for his part, Jack understands that rules without enforcement are not capable of sustaining order. This is a logical and necessary requirement of making rules. Those who inevitably break them have to be punished or coerced into following them. Rules, if they are good, force us to constrain our immediate impulses with a view to a greater or longer-term good that cannot be enjoyed if we constantly gratify our immediate impulses. Since we all know it is difficult to constrain such impulses, it follows that there must be something painful for those who break the rules. And when the enforcement is done properly, it habituates us to acting correctly. So far then, the boys have done a fairly admirable job identifying fundamental requirements of political life. They've answered the question, who will rule? They've answered the question, what will be permitted? Um, and they've even started to think about, to some extent, how they will enforce the laws. So in this way, we've covered the customs or laws that the boys set up uh, within their city, so to speak. So now that we have these sort of rules uh, that should sustain order, let's turn to the principles that they articulate, which uh, animate the community. Here is Ralph's articulation of what the boys ought to aspire to do. He says, quote, we want to have fun and we want to be rescued. Okay, so the boys will have fun and they will seek to be rescued. These are the two goods that they will pursue as a community. Can you see any tension between these two principles? We notice that Ralph does not offer a rank order of these two principles. That is to say, he could have said, get rescued or do everything in our power to get rescued. Um, and after that effort, you may have as much fun as you please. Now, of course, we have to remember Ralph is a young boy. All the boys on the island are between the ages of 5 and 12. Ralph is one of the biggins. He is 12. So since he's a young boy, or he is a young boy, but we also know that as adults in our own lives, we can sometimes find ourselves wandering between activities that presuppose differing or competing principles. For example, if we put off making a difficult phone call, we in effect say that we are choosing pleasure or the avoidance of pain over and against what is virtuous. It's very difficult to make yourself completely integrated and not to waver between these kinds of things. So throughout the story, Ralph repeatedly insists that in order to be rescued, the boys need to keep a signal fire lit so that boats that happen to pass by will know that they should stop, that this island is indeed inhabited. Jack and his chorus boys, uh, originally they were singers in a church, and that's the sort of outfits that they start out with on the island before they shed them. Um, Jack and his course boys are assigned to keep the fire going, while Ralph and others build shelters. But we see the competing principles of the community clash. Jack and all of his hunters go off to kill a pig. They have the time of their lives. They're boys, and they have fun. But they let the signal fire go out. And it is at precisely this moment that a boat actually passes by in the distance. 
The principle of fun triumphs over the principle of getting rescued. Ralph is furious, and he calls an assembly. As it turns out, Ralph is always calling assemblies. He believes in speech and reason, but he seems unprepared for when reason fails to accomplish its goals. That is to say, exhorting others to do what they ought to do is important, but it is often not enough. A teacher might say to their students, do your homework, and many of them would. But would they all do it if there were no consequences at all for not doing it? There are forms of force or coercion that can be utilized that fall well short of physical violence. If Ralph as the leader believes that sustaining the fire is the most important task, why isn't he setting the example by keeping it up? Why isn't he overseeing the boys who keep the fire, barking orders at them and putting pressure on them to keep, their, keep up at their work? Indeed, Ralph finds out later in the story, much to his dismay when most of the boys have abandoned him, that the fire is actually very difficult to maintain. This is something he should have discovered long ago. We said earlier that the ability to enforce rules and laws is essential to political life, and we see that this community has failed this important test. To zoom out a little bit, we might say that if one believes that political life can be conducted without having at least the recourse to force for lawbreakers, that person has an incredibly optimistic or naive view of human nature. Such a person might believe that good order in society is what is normal and what is almost automatic. They would not think that civilization is a rare accomplishment in need of constant nurture. And in a sense, we might say that civilization conditions us into forgetting the harshness that is required to secure and maintain the goods that only civilization at its peak can bring. Ralph is very decent and civilized, but he does not grasp this important lesson. It may be very unpleasant to put pressure on others, to assert your will against them, and even to punish wrongdoing. But sometimes, as we know, love has to be tough in order to be love at all. Jack understands the potentiality of force all too well. At a crucial assembly, Ralph insists that Piggy be allowed to speak, and Jack responds, who cares? Bollocks to the rules. This is a crucial moment from which there is no return. When someone says, I don't care, and there is no response from an authority, that authority ceases to possess its authoritative status. Indeed, it is during this moment that even Piggy, of all people, tells Ralph, Ralph, you need to be tough. The other boys begin to enjoy and admire Jack's martial prowess when he kills the second pig and Ralph's power is officially usurped. The one thing that Ralph and Piggy have that is of any value is Piggy's glasses, for it is the glasses which are used to start the fire. Jack and his followers attack Ralph and Piggy in the middle of the night and take these glasses away. When Ralph and Piggy confront Jack the next day about this, Jack says, uh, he says about the other boys that are now in his tribe, see. They do what I want. Jack rules by force alone. And in light of this, he has a greater ability to fulfill the promises he makes. With him, the boys will have some fun. But with Ralph, they never knew if they would be rescued. Undoubtedly, Jack's community is probably unsustainable as well. It may only be so long before one of the boys that he roughs up wishes to take his revenge. There's a very striking moment in the book 
when a young boy named Wilfred is tied up and being punished. One of the other boys, Roger, returns uh, from being out in the forest, and he asks, why is Wilfred being punished? No response is given. He asks a second time, why is Wilfred being punished? And so we see that Jack arbitrarily punishes people. Here's the, quote, the quotation from the book. He's going to beat Wilfred. Uh, what for? Robert shook his head doubtfully. I don't know. He didn't say. He got angry and made us tie Wilfred up. He's been, he giggled excitedly, he's been tied for hours, waiting. But didn't the chief say why? I never heard him. Sitting on the tremendous rock in the torrid sun, Roger received this news as an illumination. He ceased to work at his tooth and sat still, assimilating the possibilities of irresponsible authority. Then without another word, he climbed down the back of the rocks toward the cave and the rest of the tribe. So you see, now, now that Roger uh, sees this kind of arbitrary punishment being given to another boy, he suddenly realizes, oh, if you're strong enough to deliver the punishment, you can do whatever you want on this island. Earlier in the book, Roger had thrown a stone at one of the boys, but the narrator brought out that Roger intentionally did not hit the boy with the stone. He just threw it near the boy which is to say Roger's previous, uh, I guess, civilizational conditioning led him to think it was impossible to try to actually hit a boy with a rock, that that's just not what you do. And so now he started to see that that is no longer the case, that those former rules no longer need apply, that he's been taught a very important lesson by Jack. But in this way, with Jack teaching lessons of this kind of the arbitrary use of force and torture of various boys, you can imagine Roger uh, maybe wanting to do more of the torturing or one of the boys wishing to take revenge. So while Jack does solve certain political problems that Ralph was unable to solve or unwilling to solve, um, he introduces new instabilities of his own uh, through the use of force in this way. Okay, so we've in this way sort of taken a look at the, the rules of Ralph's political community, how he was elected. We've looked at the principles animating that community and how the, the principles were intention and were part of what led to the dissolution of that community. So let's now turn uh, to our next part and talk about the darkness in man's heart um, or the beasts or the Lord of the Flies. So throughout the story, there are rumors that there is some kind of beast on the island. At first, this rumor is started by the younger boys. Eventually, older boys, Sam and Eric, see a downed pilot hanging from a tree who they misinterpret as the beast. Many conversations are had speculating about what the beast is and whether it exists or not. At one striking assembly, Simon says cryptically but truthfully, quote, What I mean is, maybe it's only us. At this point, it isn't entirely clear what Simon has in mind. Does he simply mean that the boys are imagining it? Or does he mean that perhaps the source of the boys' misery is not something external or out there, but rather some kind of evil in themselves? When Ralph asks the question, why do things fall apart like they do, Peggy is quick with an answer. It's that Jack Maradu. I don't think that's... Piggy's accent's probably not like that. Uh, in fact, I think he has a sort of uh, Cockney accent. Uh, so... I'm not going to try out my Cockney accent on you right now, maybe in a future lecture. Uh, but Piggy places the blame on one person, 
He does not see how all of the boys have contributed in various ways to the downfall of their political community. But we'll get to this in just a moment. So Golding does something kind of striking. He has, he has Ralph ask the question, why do things break up like they do? Then we get Peggy's reply, it's Jack Meridue. But then, um, a few pages later, Golding presents a much deeper answer to this question. Uh, when he presents Simon, who has not actually heard Ralph's question about things breaking apart, receive a much uh, more serious answer in a kind of hazy vision or hallucination. He finds the head of a pig that Jack has killed that is put on a pike as a kind of sacrifice to the unseen beast. The disgusting pig head is being eaten by flies, and Simon believes that it speaks to him and that its name is the Lord of the Flies. It says, quote, Fancy thinking the beast was something you could hunt and kill. You knew, didn't you? I'm part of you. Close, close, close. I'm the reason why it's no go, why things are as they are. When Simon tries to tell the boys what he has learned, they're in a frenzy, chanting about the pig and its blood. They wonder if Simon is the beast, and they kill him, with even Ralph and Piggy participating in the murder of Simon. Now, this is a very extreme event, and we might be saying to ourselves, well, what can we really learn about um, boys on an island who accidentally kill their friends? I would never kill my friend, right? You, you, you could easily think that, um, and that therefore there's nothing really to learn. But to start with, we might say that the boys in this moment who have been plagued by so many fears of the beast um, have this overwhelming desire, a desire that overwhelms their mm, desire to understand, to remove that which they fear. The possibility, however unlikely, of somehow destroying the thing that they fear drives them to do this. And you can imagine in your own life a situation where your desire to destroy the thing that you fear leads to mistaken judgments, to being overzealous in your prosecution against that thing which you suddenly perceive as part of the problem. Or maybe I could put this another way. The boys try to take a shortcut into solving their problem. They sort of see Simon, who's a mess, he's bloody and dark and kind of crawling out, and he looks a little bit strange. But could this really be the beast that's stalking them that they could be so afraid of? So by trying to destroy this small thing, um, it's like... It's like seeing a shortcut that you want to take that you sort of hope will make it so that the real problem that's been hanging over your head goes away, um, but they can't do that. So in this way, we can see that the darkness of our hearts is revealed in the Lord of the Flies in an extreme situation. Um, this tempts us into thinking that we ourselves are exempt from darkness in our hearts or that we are not under the thrall of the beast or the Lord of the Flies. But we might understand the Lord of the Flies in the following way. Whenever we shirk our duties, when we don't follow through on what we say we are going to do, when we take the easy path, when we don't enforce the rules, when we don't assert ourselves out of fear, when we don't do what we need to because it is uncomfortable, these are all expressions of the darkness of the human heart. Recall that the boys in the beginning of the story do not start out killing each other. The voice of civilization still has some purchase on them, but they begin to make the kinds of soft and small errors listed above that add up and slowly but surely drive them apart. It is in failing to virtuously resist the small evils that present themselves to us that lays the ground for far worse ones. In other words, 
Ralph's inability and unwillingness to enforce the rules is just that that kind of weakness is just as much an expression of the beast on the island as is the boys killing Simon. There was a New York Times article that came out, I don't know, many years ago uh, that a friend sent to me that mentioned that there were some boys a little bit older than the boys in Lord of the Flies who wound up on an island um, and were, you know, survived there for a few months. And it turns out that they did not end up killing each other. And the imaginative New York Times uh, writer took this to say, or took this as a refutation of William Golding's Lord of the Flies. But I don't think Golding thinks that every group of boys that winds up on an island is going to end up killing each other. That's not at all the lesson of the book. In fact, if you think that is the lesson of the book, um, you don't need to read any more books. You can do something else. The lesson of the book would seem rather to be that we often try to evade our problems. We don't want to fully confront them. And we especially don't want to confront the fact that we are often the source of our own misery and that we are a much greater cause of our own misery than anybody else is. All right, so the ending. The boys set the island on fire, and this attracts an English naval vessel. This deus ex machina ending leaves key tensions unresolved. There is no final showdown between Ralph and Jack. This leaves many readers disappointed, but I think that this ending is a fitting one. The boys are saved through no virtue of their own, and thus never have to face up to the true character of the beast. Or, by not having to solve their own problems, they, or especially the reader, uh, especially if you are a reader who writes the New York Times, may be led to think that the real problem here is the structure of the situation the lack of adults, and the boys being stranded on an island, rather than it being somehow built into the boys' nature, and these small moments of weakness, uh, which add up and set the stage for ugliness and disaster. All right, well, that's all I have for you. Uh, thanks for listening, and I appreciate any critical uh, feedback that you have in mind. Thanks.